So in this series, we've been looking at the story of Paul. Um, we've spent quite a few episodes, in fact, just tracing the story of Paul through Acts and connecting that story with the letters that we also find from him in the New Testament. And there have been just a couple of key themes that I keep coming back to uh, as we've been uh, as we've been just sort of doing this journey together. Um, and sort of one of the key one of the first key ones is that when we, when we read Paul's letters, we have to understand them as a whole document. They were written as a whole document. Um, and we're going to look at the example today of Romans. And I always use this one with my students because it's the perfect one to really exemplify this point. You know, when we read something like Romans, it's it's a very it's a favorite, of course, of the church, and it's one that we like to preach from and teach from and all the rest of it. And it's but it's one of these letters that we just like to take our favorite bits from. We like to take our favorite verses from. And, and I admit, I've got my own favorite verses from uh, from Romans, and I've used them even in this podcast. Um, and so that's all good and well, so long as we always keep in mind the bigger context of what's going on in the entirety of the letter. And, and the first key context is the literary context. The li- literary context is the context of the whole letter. Um, and it's an entire letter written in one go, and it was meant to be delivered in one go. So when Paul wrote to the Romans or the Corinthians or the Philippians or whoever it was, he wrote a letter as a speech. He wrote these letters, and this is what we talked about in the first episode of this series, that they, though these are framed as letters, they're firstly written to be delivered to a group of people who are mostly illiterate. Um, Paul sends Romans, and it's this massive, massive piece of papyrus that he sent into this church. The majority of the people in the church wouldn't be able to read it, um, and even to the point where you, you needed to really be a trained reader to understand it, because the way you write in the ancient world is that you actually don't put, don't even put spaces between the words. They're just a, a long row of letters, row after row after row, and. You, ha- you actually have to train your eye to note, to note the different words. They're all, otherwise it just looks like a line of letters. So even the people reading these out are, are trained to do so. And more than just simply reading them, they're actually read aloud. They're read to a, co- a gathered congregation and they would have been preached. Uh, in fact, we could go so far as to say that the person who was reading them out wasn't even reading the letter. They would have memorized it. Um, so if you imagine Romans, uh, th- this person, whoever it was, would have memorized the entire letter and would have performed it. It would have been more like a sermon than it would have been uh, just a, a monotone reading of, of this particular letter. And, you know, that sounds very impressive, and by all means it is. Um, but in a world that was um, uh, that, that really prided itself on its incredible oratory, the best orators are the ones who could memorize entire speeches, hour-long speeches, memorize them and deliver them all in one sitting. Uh, and so that was a very normal practice. So the, the the idea of something like Romans read aloud, it would take about half an hour to do that. And that was exactly how it was intended to be presented. Um, there were no chapters and verses. It was just read out and you would have to just know from memory which part or which quote or wherever it is that you're thinking of about where that was in the letter, quite literally to the point of knowing at which point in the scroll you were looking for to find that piece. Um, and it's a really good example of this. If you remember in Luke 2, no, 4, I believe, 4, when Jesus is in the synagogue and he uh, he goes in there and he's, he's, they ask him to come up and um, read out scripture. And so he asks the attendant to go and get him the scroll of Isaiah. And then he turns to the place in the scroll where it says. Um, and, and so it gives you this sort of visual example of how this whole process worked. Um, it wasn't Jesus just turned to chapter one and, you know, it was no, he, he found that place in the scroll where it says this particular thing. So I guess that's that's a key point that we always need to keep in mind as we're reading these. But then there's a second key point of context that we've been talking about through this series as well, which is that there's a story behind all of these letters. And, and the point that I've sort of made at the start is that you, if there wasn't a problem in Paul's churches, then there wouldn't be letters. Paul wrote in response to issues that were going on, and we saw that particularly over the last couple of weeks with the Corinthians. There are issues that are happening to which Paul has to respond, and if there wasn't the problems, then there wouldn't be letters. 
And so it's not until we actually understand what those issues were that we can really understand what these letters are about. What is the on the other side of this conversation? The, the letter is only one side of a dialogue. So if you're writing an email or a letter to somebody, you're generally either writing to begin a conversation or you're writing in response to something somebody has said. And so, of course, you, you understand how all of that works, but it's no different for any of this. And so we need to understand the whole conversation as much as we can try to guess from it based on the one side of the discussion that we have uh, as to what was going on and, and what this thing might have been uh, that it was addressing. So without those key pieces of information, it's it's not impossible to understand the letter. I mean, the, the literary context is much easier. That just means just read the whole thing rather than your favorite bits. The harder part is the, um, the, the sort of um, situational context of the letter. And that's what we've been talking about here. Now, again, everything we've been talking about here is a, is a pretty well-established guesswork. Uh, it's taking into consideration the bits of evidence we have. And this is generally what is agreed what is what was going on and how it all fits together. So that's what we've been talking about here. But as you can see, what I hope you can see by listening to this is how important all of this context was into understand. But in also in doing that, um, how much more illuminating that becomes when we read when we actually do read the letters. Uh, how much more um, real they become, or how much more living they become as a result of understanding all of this information. So anyway, I'm only repeating myself a little bit, just sort of summarizing the last five or six weeks now that we've been doing this. And there's only two more weeks to go, by the way. We're going to start next week looking at Paul's travels in prison and and writing the prison epistles there. So today we're going to get to Paul's last, well, I guess really Paul's last letter as a free man. Um, This is the last thing he's writing before he goes off to prison. That's the letter to the Romans. Now, Romans is a little bit different. The literary context doesn't change. You've got to read the whole thing. And it's actually um, one of the more important ones to take that into consideration because Romans really is just one long argument. You know, at least with Corinthians, you can read that in sections because Paul's dealing with um, different situations, different issues. Romans, you cannot understand Romans. In fact, um, uh, a colleague of mine a few years ago asked me the question. Uh, she was doing a sermon, I think, on Romans 8. And she asked me the question, what do I need to read in order to really to best understand Romans 8? Now, of course, she was intending you know, books, commentaries, these sorts of things. So, and my answer was, well, simple, Romans 1 to 7. And we all sort of both laughed about it, but it was really true. You know, if you want to understand Romans 7, you have, sorry, Romans 8, you have to understand, you have to read Romans 1 to 7 because it's, the first seven sections of the argument of Romans 8. It's all one and the same thing. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's one of those really essential letters where you have to take the whole thing into consideration. You can't just start in Romans 12 because it doesn't make any sense without everything that's gone before it. Um, so that's very true of Romans. But there's also a story behind it, and it's a bit harder to see because Romans, it's – it, it kind of, it really does read like a sermon. It, it really just does read like a theological treatise of this is what I, Paul was saying, this is what I believe, basically. This is my, almost my, my creedal statement. This is what I've come to understand theologically about who Christ is. And, and so you read it that way and it really can stand alone apart from context. You, you, if you if you never knew the story behind Romans, it was it's still such a rich letter. It's still so, there's still so much in it, simply based on the fact that it's such an incredibly rich discussion of the Christian faith. You know, you don't you, you almost don't even necessarily know who the author is or need need to know who the author is because again, it can stand alone um, so powerfully by itself. But when you do understand the story as to why he wrote it, again, it's just that extra layer of interpretive understanding. It's that extra layer of illumination that, uh, just gives it its, its full richness of meaning. Now there is one section at the end of the letter that we'll get to that really does need to be understood within its, um, its situational context, but again, so much of it can be understood. But then we just have to ask the question, why would Paul spend the months and the money that it would have taken to write Romans? I mean, it would have been a couple of months worth of work and it would have been an exorbitant amount of money 
to write this particular letter. Why would he go to that much trouble just to write down what he was talking about every day with his friends? Now, what's the point? Um, and if he was go going to Rome, why did he need to spend all that time and money writing down this letter? Why didn't he just go there and tell them? So there is still at least a question as to why did this come come into existence? If if there was no key, key you know, big situational issues that he was addressing, it was just Paul writing down what he believed. Again, why why go to all the trouble? Why not just go there anyway and tell them in one of his many many sermons there? So that's the question we're going to get to because it's really the question that wraps up this whole story that we've been talking about and really creates a segue to the next stage of the journey that Paul wants to, to go on to. That's what, so that's what we're going to look at in this week's episode. So in Acts 2, Jesus gives his disciples this commission. Uh, he says to them, It's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this final commission that Jesus is given to the disciples is this idea that or the, the implication of this is that once that gospel is preached to the ends of the earth, that's, get, that's the job done. Go and preach the gospel into the entirety of the world. And then once that's happened, then I'm going to return and the job will be finished. And so for the first church, that was their instructions. That was their whole MO. This is, what, this is what they were to do now. And so there was a sense of urgency about it because it, as far as they were concerned, Jesus was coming back in their lifetime because they're all the indications that, you know, you, this generation will not die until they see the coming of you know, the Son of Man, all of these sorts of, these sorts of things. They took to heart the idea that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And I'm sure we've talked about this already, but this was why there was a real sense of urgency around Paul and really a sense of, um, look, there's just a whole lot of things in this life that don't actually matter because, in a, you know, tomorrow when Jesus comes back, none of this is going to matter because we're going to be in eternity. So why worry about the little things when we've got the eternal thing to worry about, which is coming maybe tomorrow? So this was the urgency that they had, and this is really what, really what shaped a lot of their their ethics and their theology, um, again, was this idea that Jesus was, has, there was an imminent arrival. And what was going to signify that, the thing that was going to really bring that about or was going to be the thing that has to be done before that happens is that the gospel has to go to the ends of the earth. Once it goes there, then that's it. You, you've done the job. Everyone's heard the message. Now it's time to finish up. Well, that's all very good. That's all very uh, straightforward. One thing we have to remember, though, is that 2,000 years ago, their understanding of geography was very different to what it is today. You know, we have the advantage of global satellites where we can see the entirety of the Earth in one view. We can, we can literally see the Earth through a screen. Uh, they didn't have that luxury yet. In fact, uh, if you were living in Europe or in Asia where... Um, uh, where all of this was happening, your understanding of the entire world was the continent that you were living on. It was the continent of Africa or of Europe or of Asia. You didn't have any understanding of anything beyond that. All there was was vast ocean and then literally God only knows. N nobody knows what is beyond that. So if you travel west, you get to the edge of Europe and you've literally hit the ends of the earth. That's it. Because it, they, it's 1,500 years later that Christopher Columbus discovers America. That, that doesn't come for much, much longer, a much, much later time. So as far as someone like Paul is concerned, the furthest you travel west, Spain, is the ends of the earth. And so we see in Paul throughout, and particularly now in Romans, this urgency to get to Spain it's not that he has uh, some friends there that he wants to go and see or he's got some mission opportunities. He doesn't know what waits him in Spain. All he knows is that's the ends of the earth and that's where he has to get to. So if you're looking at a map, Paul starts out in Antioch and where he's got to so far has been through Galatia, which is really the next region to the west. 
Now, his choice of direction was really determined, um, I guess, essentially through that original council or that original consultation he had with the apostles. Peter was going to go to the Jews and then Paul was going to go to the Gentiles. But there would have been a further division of missionary fields so that there wouldn't be any overlap. Um, you know, So we take Alexandria, for instance, in, in Northern Africa. We know that Apollos came from Alexandria. Well, Paul never went to Alexandria, but somebody must have because there's Christians there. How did uh, Apollos hear the gospel to become a Christian from Alexandria? Somebody must have gone down there from Jerusalem, from amongst the 12. So these guys were going in all different directions around the place. It was that Paul followed or went up into Galatia, which if you look at a map, that's where Tarsus is, Paul's first missionary ventures were back around his homeland and then he went further west well he went all the way over to greece again following a map you can see that he went he actually skipped over asia not by choice he he wanted to do asia then do greece but then you know the holy spirit said come over to macedonia and all the rest so he went over to greece and then he eventually did uh, asia minor which is where we were just looking last week when paul was in ephesus and so this time he changed his whole mo about how to do things and so he sends out all these church planters and uh, and all of that story so he's covered uh at least his allocated area of the land of 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 europe of of asia and then of europe and so now it's going to it's time to continue that work on uh, up into spain so that's been paul's primary purpose throughout this entire time is is doing this um but there's also been this secondary um, um, job, this, this secondary task that Paul wants to, has been trying to do throughout all of this, and that's been taking up this offering for Jerusalem. Now, we haven't spoken much about it because Paul doesn't speak much about it. There's not a lot of talk about it in Acts, um, but it has been uh, one of the key things that he's been trying to achieve throughout all of this time. And, and there's really two uh, two purposes to this offering. The first one is the practical purpose, which is to take up an offering for Jerusalem. Now, exa- what exactly the circumstances were? We we know they had faced persecution early on. Um, you know, we worried about in Acts two how there's people that are selling their houses and they're bringing the money into um, to give to the church. Well, that wasn't just like. Um, you know, some early form of communism or something. We don't need houses anymore because we all live in these monasteries. Or something. It had nothing to do with that. What it was to do with was that these Christians who were becoming Christians are uh, being kicked out of their families. You know, in an Orthodox Jewish family, and particularly in a city that is Orthodox Jewish, you become the Christian, you are, um, you're an apostate. You know, you look at what the persecutor Saul was trying to do to these Christians. At the very minimum, you become one of those Christians and your family is very likely to kick you out. Uh, and that's still true today. There are still circumstances where this happens, where you become a Christian and you're a traitor to the family, a traitor to the community. That's going to get you kicked out. Now, in today's world, you get kicked out of your family or your home. That's a terrible thing emotionally, but you're not alone. You, you still got a job or you still got your, a, a much bigger community in the Western world that is going to look after you. At the very least, you've got government benefits that are going to look after you. That's not the case in the ancient world. You get kicked out of the family. You get kicked out of the family job, out of everything. The whole, your, your whole means of support is gone. And the odds are you're going to die in the street. There's nowhere else to turn to. All of your family's abandoned you. There's no government support to look after you. You're done. And so these Christians that are, um, all of these Christians that are coming into the community are coming at the cost of their means of support. So who's going to look after them? Where, where's the money going to come from? There's only so far that the generosity can go. And so people are selling their houses in order to fund this growing Christian community. So that's, there's some serious financial strains that are being placed on there. Uh, but then we don't know what the story of what happens with the rest of the story of Jerusalem. We, we, we leave Jerusalem early in the account of Acts and we pick up Paul's adventures through um, as he's traveling through all these journeys. But that's not to say that it's everything just calmed down in, in Jerusalem. We, again, we don't really know the extent of it, but part of the point of this offering was to bring about financial support for, uh, for these Jewish people. 
But the second thing, and perhaps the more important thing, was to build a uh, a bridge, literally, well, not literally, but I guess metaphorically, between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. Very early on, this the Christianity was a Jewish movement, and there was a real struggle to break out into the into the Gentile world, and we've sort of seen some of the difficulties that Paul faced. Well, Paul was continuing to plant churches amongst the Gentiles, and this was causing continuing angst uh, amongst, certainly amongst the Orthodox Jewish people back in Jerusalem, but even amongst maybe some of the Christian Jews who are, you know, uh, maybe opposed, and we've seen plenty of these, plenty of this opposition uh, through Paul's travels of Jewish Christians who are insisting on circumcision and all the rest of it, that was still there. That that sort of attitude would still be there amongst some of the Jewish Christians, certainly back in Jerusalem. And so what Paul was trying to do was to sort of quench some of these doubts or just really just to show the church back in Jerusalem that these Gentile Christians are your brothers and sisters. They are family and they're literally putting their money where their mouth is in proving that. And so it's an offering that's really trying to establish something of a connection between uh, between the churches to really give everyone a sense of the more universal nature of this church, that wherever you find yourself on the planet, if you find another Christian, then this is a brother and sister. Uh, and that's really the point here. So there's been a, that's really sort of the core of, of this offering that Paul's been taking up. But as we saw over the last couple of weeks, it was also a source of really the breakdown of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. So just a real quick recap of, of last week, um, we find ourselves in the year 55, so it's spring 55, and um, it's, a, it's spring, so therefore the, the sea lanes have opened up again, travel is now possible again. Uh, so in spring 55, um, Paul has sent that letter of tears with Titus. So he's had the falling out with the Corinthians, and so now he's decided he's not going to return. Um, he's just had the the riot in Ephesus where they've wanted to kill him. You know, he's literally just had the Corinthians, you know, well, at least spiritually want to kill him, but maybe even physically. But then he's come back to Ephesus and they've literally wanted to kill him. It's just been a really, really bad time for Paul. And so rather than go back to Corinth to try to sort the issue out, he's, he decides instead to send this letter of tears. So he's then traveled up north towards Macedonia. So again, if you've got your map out, I don't know, you might be listening to this in the car. Sorry, don't pull a map out while you're driving. Um, but if you if you sort of follow the map, you're going up through um, what is now Turkey. You go over into Macedonia. That's the direction Paul was going to was going to take, and then. Um, he was going to eventually meet the Corinthians, sort of come back down south through Macedonia, through Greece, and find his way back down to Corinth. So he sends that letter with Titus, and he then Paul starts to travel north. Well, anyway, a few months later, we get to about the middle of the year, maybe maybe around summer, and uh, Titus arrives in Macedonia with this report that the Corinthians had dealt with this wrongdoer, the person who had originally... Um, publicly accused Paul of this crime of embezzlement, so that he, they've, they've dealt with him. Um, but also the super apostles that the church had brought in, um, they were probably they were probably still there. Um, in fact, they, they certainly uh, they, they yeah it's or they or they had been maybe they were sort of in the last stages of being pushed out. Um, but they had been a problem, obviously, through this whole time, this replacement apostles that had been brought in. And so the, they've probably maybe been dealt with by this stage. So it's all good news on that front um, that Paul has, um, or at least Titus has been able to make most of the headway towards reconciliation. But there were still some doubts. Um, there were still some questions. There's been a lot of things that have been said, a lot of rumors, a lot of speculation. And so there are still some doubts amongst the remaining Corinthians as to Paul's integrity. You know, he's at the very least, he keeps changing his mind. He said he was going to come back. Then he sends this nasty letter, you know, all these different things. And so Paul had to write this letter of reconciliation, which we find in 2 Corinthians 1 to 9. And so he writes that probably from Philippi. Um, we're not 100% sure, but he was in Macedonia at the very least. And what we're where we're up to now in Paul's story is that it's something of a farewell tour, right? So these are, Paul's just going back to places that he's already been. 
but he already now has his sights set on going to Spain. That's where he's ultimately wanting to get to. And in order, for, but before that happens, he just needs to tie up all of these loose ends and say his final goodbyes. So he travels back down through Macedonia while all of this is happening. Um, he sends two Corinthians one nine with Titus, and the purpose of that letter is really just to pave the way for his eventual arrival in Corinth. It's really just to sort of clear the air. Um, he's not going to be able to get there straight away. He's still got things to do in Macedonia, but he wants to make sure that they know exactly where they where he stands and where they stand with him um, before he arrives. And especially too, the thing that Paul's really concerned about is to get this offering ready. Uh, so 2 Corinthians 8 to 9 is to finalize the offering. Uh, it's The whole section there is really just Paul answering practical questions as to how much you know what what is what is required of this you know remind us again what it's about it's all of that it's really paul just trying to make very very clear and in fact if you look at um, chapters eight it's a lot of that is really just about the um the the sort of the what's the word i'm looking for um trying to put in uh, integrity measures, I guess, or, or put in accountability measures. And so he says, I'm going to send along all these extra brothers and all these extra people. So it's not, I'm not even going to touch the money, right? It doesn't, I don't even have to, you don't, I don't even have to see how much it is, but I, I just want to make sure it's taken up. And so here are all these people who can vouch for it here. Are, you know, and so there's a real, just to make sure, just to remove any doubts about my integrity around this, not that there should have ever been, but if you, just in case, just if there's anyone who's got any last remaining doubts, I won't even go near the money. I don't even know how, need to know how much it's going to be. You guys give it to these people and they can be the ones to take it. Okay. It's not about me at all. It's about getting this thing to Jerusalem where it's most needed. So all of those two chapters are really trying to set this offering up and really trying to finalize that whole thing there. And so he sends that letter along to Corinth, and then we know that he eventually gets there. So we pick up this story um, in, in Acts chapter 20. So in Acts 20 verse 2, it says, He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece. Now when it says Greece, what it's talking about is Corinth because Corinth was had become the Roman capital of that province of, of Greece. And so that's where he was. So he stays there three months. Now, why three months? Because it's winter. There's no traveling happening at that stage. So he spends the winter of 55 over to 56. He spends that time in Corinth. He says, then because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So if you still got your map open, what he would had originally planned to do was to sail from Corinth. If you remember, Corinth is a very famous port city and that's where everyone's sailing in and out from the idea that paul had would have been to sail directly from corinth go down uh, underneath uh, asia minor and then find himself in syria now when he's talking about syria he's talking about the roman province of syria with its capital uh, being caesarea now see so if you're caesarea is just a little bit north of uh, what well, is basically in the northern part of what is today israel so it's a place you can go and visit, Caesarea Maritima. So that's where everybody would have arrived. And from there, it's only a short trip down to Jerusalem. So this was Paul's original plan, go straight to Jerusalem. That's where he wants to get down to, as he says, as we find out later, he wants to get down there for Pentecost. And really just to say his final farewells to Jerusalem, because his plan at this stage is to get to Spain. He's got eyes set on Spain. What he needs to do now however, is just to tie up a lot of these loose ends and then go to Spain because, I mean, he's getting pretty old by this stage too. Paul's probably in his early 60s by this stage. And so he doesn't, you know, he's, it's a miracle he's lived that long. He, he, he's probably not expecting to ever see these people again. In fact, he says that to them, you know, as he goes around, I'm never going to see you guys again, if only because I'm an old man and I'm going to be dead soon. So he's going back to Jerusalem, tie up those loose ends, and then he's going to uh, he's going to head off from there. However, it says, as it says here, um, it's going to take a bit longer because he has to go back through Macedonia because there's some plot to try to kill him. He goes back through Macedonia, which is to travel by land, which means that it's probably going to take about the next year or so for Paul to actually end up down in Jerusalem where he wants to get to. So this he's really going the long, slow way in order to get there. And so it's from here, and this is the point I'm trying to get to. It's during this winter 
that Paul writes to the Romans. Again, he's got all eyes on Spain, but what he wants to do is he, he can't just go straight to Spain because he, he's got nobody there. Everywhere he's been so far, there have at least been people that he can draw from. He, there's at least a synagogue there, if nothing else. But he's got relationships that he's established around this area because there have been Christians in these areas. There's been places where people have been working. And so he's got a place, he's got people to, to rely on. Now, he doesn't have that in Spain. That's just not something that he has. And so what he needs to do is to start from a place where he's got that support. You know, he's been working in Antioch. Well, from Antioch, he goes up into Galatia. And then, as you saw, he went to Ephesus. And he, from Ephesus, he he sent workers into Asia Minor. He, he starts, Paul's uh, MO is to set up a base of operations, a base of support, and then, tr and then launch out from there. And that's the, the place to come back to. Now, that's going to be somewhere relatively close to where you're working, of course, because you don't want to be too far away from your base of support. Well, again, if you don't have anyone in Spain, you need to set up a base of support at the closest possible place you can get to, which in this case was Rome. There was a church in Rome, and as we find out, he's got some very good friends in Rome that he wants to work with or work from. And so what he does is that he writes this letter to the Romans in order to, uh, to establish this, in order to say, guys, I'm coming, uh, I want to go to Spain, but... Um, I need you guys, your help. And so this letter was really to, to lay the groundwork for that, for that particular thing. But within that, there's also one little piece of good news, which is whatever happened to the offering. You know, there'd been all of this trouble that Paul had been going through in order for, you know, for this offering to happen. Paul's writing from Corinth and he says this right at the end of the letter, Romans 15, 26. He says, now have, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia... And Achaia, so Achaia meaning Corinth, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor amongst the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. So that's one of the little good news stories out of all of this. So for the last 12 months of hell that Paul's been through with the Corinthians and all about the money, they've come good. Not They haven't just said, oh, okay, Paul, yeah, all is forgiven, but they've actually put their money where their mouth is and they have reconciled and, and, and they've brought about the offering. So all of that is good news. But this is where it leaves us, where we've got Paul, he's finished his work there. He's done as much as he possibly can within this region, and he wants to keep moving further west. Now, as he says to the Romans, I'm not going to preach to you in Rome. I'm not going to do work there because that work has already been done. There's already an established church. And that, that actually raises a really good question of where did that church come from? Um, that's actually the question we're going to ask, answer in a moment. But for Paul, again, the point is to get to Spain. Rome will be that base of operations. And for that to happen, he needs to get to Rome and then carry on the work up there. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast to be helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review. This is really going to help spread it further. Uh, you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and all of the other social media attached to the New Testament story. Uh, you can find the link for these in the show notes. And you might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do that through that same link. But anyway, back to the show. Now, a question you've probably never asked is, where did the Roman church come from? Um, Paul writes this letter to the Romans, but there's no sign that he had anything to do with the church. In fact, when you read the letter, he makes it pretty clear, you know, I've never been to you guys before. Um, so where did the church come from? I mean, all of Paul's letters so far have been written to churches that he planted, and we can see the relationship that he had with these churches. And later on, when we come to the prison epistles, we'll also see churches that he had had some sort of hand in establishing. But that's not the case for the Romans. This is the one, I mean, the Romans is Paul's most famous letter, and yet it's written to a church that at that stage he'd never even been to. He'd never even been to Rome before. So where did it come from? What, what's the story behind the church of, uh, of the Romans? Well, there's kind of another parallel story that we need to understand in order to understand that part of it. So we've talked about a few different parallel stories through this very big, complicated story that we've been going through. Um, but there's also the one big story that's happening during all of this time, which is the story of Rome itself. And when we talk about Rome, what we're talking about are the emperors. Um, this is the Roman Empire. And, you know, we, we sort of get this sense that we, we you know, 
you, you might read the New Testament and yeah, and maybe get this idea that um, Jerusalem is the center of the world and that the Christians are the big story, that Jesus is the big story, that um, you know everyone must have been just so completely focused on, on what was going on in Galilee as to what Jesus was doing. And when you read your New Testament, it would be easy to get that sense because that's where the focus of the story is. That, that's the centerpiece of what you know Luke was focused on or what the gospel authors are focused on. But it's completely wrong. Um, Galilee and Jerusalem are literally on the edges of the empire. They are quite literally the next the next town over is basically um, pagan. <laughs> it's basically barbarian lands, right? You, you've got to the edges of the empire when you talk about that. And Jesus, as a person in the first century, was a nobody. He was just another guy. He was as important as the other two guys that were crucified on either side of him. He was a nobody. No one cared, No one knew who Jesus was. At the end of his life, he had 120 people who still stuck by him. Um, there was just no. There was nothing going on over here, and certainly nothing that anyone was paying attention to because all of the focus was on Rome. All of the focus was on the emperors. What What are the emperors doing? It's, I mean, like, not to denigrate anyone who's listening to this, but it's comparing the importance of your life with that of the Kardashians or with the Trumps or with, you know, I mean, these sorts of, everyone is talking about a couple of different families in a place that we've probably never been to. They're, they're not talking about us, okay? We're about as important as as Jesus was in that time. Um, so... Uh, that's the real story of the Roman Empire is what's going on with the emperors. And whatever they do, I mean, if they, you know, if they sneeze, that's going to have an impact on the culture of the rest of the empire. Uh, so these are where the focus is. And it's important to understand even a little bit about who these people were and what they were doing during this time in order to get a sense then of um, what was going on in the Christian world because the Christian world was part of the Roman world and it was being directly influenced by that Roman world. Now, eventually, the Christian world starts to influence the Roman world, but we're not there yet. Um, we know, we're talking about you know, a movement that's maybe a still only a few thousand people in Paul's day on the planet, right? That's the very first generation of Christianity. So just a quick sort of recap then of, of who these emperors were. The first key one that we deal with is the Emperor Claudius. Now, he comes to power in the year 41 CE. Now, of course, there's been emperors before that. Emperor Augustus was the one under whom Jesus was born, and then it was his adopted son, Tiberius, that under whom Jesus was crucified. But Christianity still wasn't anything yet. It was still Jesus in Jerusalem with a couple of followers. Um, it's not till about sort of another seven or eight years later that Claudius comes to power, and that's when Christianity is a thing, right? It's about this time. Well, it's it's just you know this is just before, uh, after the time that Saul has been persecuting the Christians, as we saw from the, our timeline. Uh, Paul's become a Christian now. Uh, it, it's starting to move itself out of Jerusalem. It's starting to very slowly trickle into the Gentile world, but still relatively nothing. So Claudius comes to power about that stage. Now, fortunately, Claudius isn't a terrible emperor. There's some terrible ones. Claudius isn't one of them. Um, he had his he had his issues, of course, but he seems to be a almost a sort of live and let live kind of emperor. Um, he seems to be certainly one of the ones they write better about uh, in that sense, which is which seems appropriate because it's during his reign that Christianity really flourishes. Um, it's during his reign that Paul is doing a lot of this stuff. In fact, it's almost during the entirety of Claudius's reign that all of this story we've been talking about has been happening. So from 41 in our story right now, we're up to about 55. So we've just come to the end of his reign. We've just come into the beginning of Nero's reign. So all of this stuff, again, has been happening during the reign of Claudius. All the work that Peter's been doing uh, and all the other apostles, all of that's been happening here. Okay, so Claudius is the guy in power. Now, there's a really important thing that happens in the year 49 that sets the tone for the rest of the empire, for the rest of the empire, but also just sort of sets the tone for what is about to happen uh, in in this in the city of Rome and also to the church in Rome. Um, 
So we read actually read about this in Acts 18 too. It's a story we've already sort of covered, but just by way of repeating it. So in, when Paul was in Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we talked about that, and that's why Priscilla and Aquila found themselves in Corinth. Now, we also read about the same account from the Roman historian Suetonius, who says, because the Jews of Rome were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. Now, we don't know quite who this Crestus is, but it's a good guess that it was probably talking about Christ. It's just a misspelling of him. But the real point here is that at this stage, the Jews are kicked out of Rome. Um, Now, that has a couple of implications. The first one is that the, the that would include the Jewish Christians because as far as uh, Claudius is concerned, Jews are Jews. Now, uh, an Orthodox Jew would object and say, no, I'm not a Christian Jew. Uh, What are you talking about? I'm not those people over there. And the Christian Jews would say, well, I'm not those people over there. It would be the difference between a Protestant and a Mormon saying we're nothing alike and somebody from the outside saying you all talk about Jesus, you've all got churches, you're all the same thing as far as we're concerned. He, so he just wholesale, if you're Jewish, you're out. Get out of Rome. We're done. And in part, even though they see the difference between themselves, it's probably because of that difference, that constant arguing over Christ, that has caused them to be kicked out in the first place. And so he says, here's a simple solution. All of you get out, right? Everybody just go. So all the Jews have left, right? Empty synagogues, empty Jewish communities, all of that has been left behind. Um, but at the same time, something else is happening, which is that there have been there has already been a church established there, and we'll see where that comes from in a moment. A church has been established there that includes these Jewish Christians, but also has Gentile Christians as well. So the Jewish Christians are gone. They've been kicked out, and all that's left are the Gentile Christians. So now we've got... Uh, the church still there. The Christians are still there, but they, they're Gentiles. They, they, they are fine as far as Claudius is concerned. They're not part of the problem. They've been able to sort of fly under the radar of all of this. And so overnight, we've gone from a Jewish Gentile church to just a purely Gentile church. So that's, that's a thing. That's, that's, a, that's a significant thing that has, that has just happened overnight. And that's going to have really significant repercussions because this exile that they go through lasts a very long time. See, the thing about a, an edict by an emperor is that it lasts for as long as the emperor is in power. Uh, it's a bit, you know, a bit like sort of in the US constitutional system where the president can make an executive order. That's all good and well, but only lasts as long as that, em- as long as that president is in power. The minute the president is out of power, then all of that gets reversed. So for the time that Claudius is in power, from the year 49 until whenever this thing is going to end or to his reign is going to end, the Jews have been kicked out of Rome. That's So that's a significant thing. That is going to, again, cause problems we're going to see later on. But it also, I think, is actually what is at the core of some of the persecution that we see. Um, what, see... The, the emperor isn't just somebody who sets the rules. The emperor is, one, is the one who really sets the tone and morality of the empire. Not because people look to the emperor genuinely as a god. Now, some people would have believed that he was a god, but many would have just gone, look, you know, if he wants to be a god, that's fine. We'll worship him as, as such because, you know, we've got nothing to lose by doing it. In fact, we've actually got everything to gain by doing it. See, if the emperor... Um, has a particular view about something, then everybody's going to share that view. Again, not because they share the same moral compass as the emperor. Often they don't. But it's because if you uh, sort of show that sort of respect to the emperor, if you at least ostensibly hold to his views, then you're not going to – well, on the one hand, you're not going to get any trouble from him. If you're, if you're seen to be opposing the emperor, that's going to bring about trouble. So you don't want to be seen to be opposing him. But if you seem to be uh, upholding him and sharing his values, you're very likely to get some, some, some um, benefit from him. Some, he's going to be much more favorable to you. So you might get benefits to your city or to your own life because you're showing the emperor that sort of level of respect and that sort of um, – you know, you're sort of sharing the same 
values as him, that's going to work in your favor. Even if you don't believe it, you're going to be seen to uh, be favorable to him. All of that works in your favor. So anyway, all that to say, if he's kicked out the Jews, what that's signaling to everybody is the Jews are bad. Now, everyone has already, I mean, anti-Semitism is as old as Jewishness itself. It's always been around. Uh, and in the Roman Empire, it was no different. The Jews were always seen as a something of a scorn. You know, they were, the fact that they didn't work on Saturdays, the fact that they circumcised their kids, they didn't eat all of these, these great foods. You know, they were always seen to be a... Um, a, a strange lot. And they didn't help their own cause by isolating themselves from the community, creating their own little sub-communities. They didn't sort of help themselves in that way as well. But it, they, they also, it always sort of ranged from sort of laughter to the Jews to outright just disgust towards the Jews. And particularly around the issue of circumcision, the, the Gentiles were the very opposite. I mean, a, a Jew would look at a person who's uncircumcised and say, you're filthy. And the, the Greek would look at the Jews who's circumcised and say, you're filthy for doing that. Like it was a, that was a real point of contention. Um, now you might ask, how the hell did they know? Well, everyone goes to the baths and everyone's naked at the baths. So that's kind of how it all comes about. But there was always sort of that real disgust around the Jews and, and could very often lead to outright violence and persecution towards them. So that's not new. That's always There's always pockets of that throughout. But now when the emperor is doing it, that's a different thing. When the emperor does it, that sets a tone for everybody. And that's going to cause trouble throughout the empire for the Jewish people. Um, so we see uh, these the situations that we've seen where for example, when Paul was in Philippi and they bring him up on those charges, and we, we talked about that in a previous episode, but they bring him up on all these charges, and primary amongst these charges are these men are Jews. So they're trying to ensure that Paul and Silas get um, ideally killed, and so they start from this point of they're Jews. Now, their Jewishness has nothing to do with the charges, but the, these, uh, these accusers want to make sure that everybody knows that these are not good people based on their ethnicity. So straight away, you're, you're bringing in this sort of, um, this, well, very anti-Semitic starting point, um, knowing that that's going to bring you favor because you're not the Jew and you're almost going to guarantee that they're not going to get a good hearing because they are the Jews. So why is that the case? Why does everybody feel that way? Well, because Philippi, and especially Philippi, a city that is a Roman colony, totally loyal to the Roman Empire. And in the same year, in year 40, in the year 49, when this has just happened, all of this is just playing against Paul and Silas. We see the same thing in Thessalonica, same year in Thessalonica. Um, they, they've got this, um, they, they've brought the um, Paul and Silas in. And again, they're, um, they're, they're bringing them up in accusations of preaching uh, or leading people to act against the decrees of Caesar, which is to worship him. Um, so again, it's now notice what they say. They, uh, they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, if this Crestus was the same person, well, everybody knows that Crestus is the person that the Jewish community were arguing over, and for that reason they got kicked out. So they're trying to perhaps attach Paul and his companions by saying Jesus, trying to attach him to that same Crestus and say these guys are advocates of that same Crestus that got the Jews kicked out in the first place. So again, we've got sort of that same tone is being played on in order to to get Paul persecuted. We see the same thing in Corinth, um, where you've got um, the, the Jewish community, in fact. It's interesting that it's a, it's a whole different story, but it's interesting the way that um, the Jewish community is bringing Paul um, before Gallio, who's the Roman governor, and it's Jews that are actually bringing the charges. So they're already kind of on the radar as being troublemakers by virtue of being Jewish. They're trying to sort of separate themselves from Paul by saying that this guy's advocating uh, or he's causing people to worship God contrary to Roman law. He's trying to sort of separate them out, but without drawing any negative attention to themselves because, you know, they're already in the spotlight. They don't want to be sort of tarred with the same brush that they're trying to tar Paul with. 
And so they're trying to sort of say, he's the one doing all of this bad stuff. Don't look at us, look at him, look at him instead. And then Gallio just goes, no, nah, I'm not interested in any of this. And so instead they beat up the head of the, the synagogue leader and Gallio doesn't care. They literally, in front of him, they beat this guy up out in public and Gallio just goes, yeah, whatever, because there's a general tone of anti-Semitism that if a, the, the head of the Jewish community gets the crap beaten out of him, we don't care because he's a Jew. So none of that matters. So anyway, that's a bit of a sidetrack really. But the point being that in 49, when Paul's doing his missionary work and his more significant missionary work, there's this same undertone that seems to be reflected uh, as a result of this decision to, um, to kick out the Jews. But then in 54, Claudius dies. So that's 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 significant. Uh, now the story of his death is um, well, it's it kind of reads a bit more like a keeping up with the Kardashian kind of story. It's full of scandal and uh, and all sorts of well, I wouldn't say the Kardashians are guilty of what these guys are guilty of, but certainly it has a lot of scandal around it. So basically, the story goes that. Um, uh, a, a mother by the name of Agrippina. She's the mother of a young boy named Nero. Now, she wants her son to be the emperor. Now, the way that that's going to happen, well, she really wants the power for herself, but she she can never do that because she's a woman. So she wants to get the power um, at least to her son so that she can share it with him. Now, as a young teenager, um, she, well, she divorces uh, her, her previous husband and um, she's got a young son, Nero, so she, re- she marries Claudius, who is the emperor at the time, with the intent that he would adopt Nero and then he would become the emperor upon the death of Claudius. So that's the plan and, and that's what she puts in place. Now, one little complicating factor is that Claudius actually happens to be her uncle as well. And Romans have a lot of serious issues around incest, um, be it with a stepmother or with an actual aunt or uncle. But on this occasion, they actually rewrote the laws. They said, look, all incest is bad unless it's your uncle. And so they actually changed the law just to accommodate this one little one of Agrippina, Mary, and Claudius because Claudius is the emperor and, well, we're just going to make it work. So they do. Well, anyway, the problem for Cla- for Agrippina is that Claudi- Claudius already has a son, a guy by the name, a little kid by the name of Britannicus, who's the same age as Nero. And so she sort of manipulates her way. She sort of gets teachers in place that um, treat him quite poorly until eventually she causes Claudius to really sort of dismiss Britannicus into the background. Uh, and so Britannicus is kind of pushed off, pushed out of the picture, and she brings Nero onto the scene. And eventually he is adopted by Claudius and is, more importantly, declared to be the heir to the throne. So fantastic, Claudius is alive. Claudius um, is now, uh, he's given, sort of uh, tapped Nero on the shoulder to be the next emperor. The only problem is that Claudius is still alive. Well, that's easy fixed. Why don't we give him some dinner? You know, some some nice mushrooms. Well, they happen to be poisonous mushrooms. Oh, whoops, we didn't know. But anyway, he eats the poison mushrooms, drops dead, and so now Nero takes the throne at the age of 17. Now, initially in his reign, he was he was a pretty good emperor the first couple of years. I mean, he's a 17-year-old kid. You know, he's got no idea what's going on in the world. He's just been given, he's literally become the king of the world. Um, but for the first few years, he's actually pretty good. Um, he's got a personal tutor, a guy by the name of Seneca. Now, Seneca is the fam- very famous philosopher, same age as Paul, and who's also the brother of Gallio, the guy who's actually just nearly persecuted Paul. Um, so he's the he's sort of his personal tutor. Uh, he's a very famous Stoic philosopher, and he is the one who has sort of trying to keep Nero in check, trying to... Um, instill in him the values as a young man that will hopefully create later on a really good, mature emperor. It works for the first few years. And then Nero starts to hang out with his other wealthy, elite, drunken buddies, and the whole thing goes to hell. However, the point of that for our story is that in 54, when Nero comes to power, 
Claudius is dead. So everything Claudius has decreed is now finished. Now that Nero is in, in power, one of the key things that Claudius had decreed was that the Jews can't be in Rome. Well, now they can be in Rome. So that's all good news. The Jews can come back to Rome. However, this is going to cause issues in the church. Okay, so I didn't quite answer the question before about where the church in Rome came from. This wasn't one of Paul's church plans, not like the churches that we've already seen. In fact, the story of the church in Rome actually goes back to Acts chapter 2. So all the way, all the way back to the day of Pentecost. Um, we read the story there. In Jerusalem, there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So proselytes are converts to Judaism and potentially even Greeks. So the church in Rome actually dates back to literally day one of Christianity. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, the very beginning of the church, all the way back in what, maybe 34 CE, thereabouts. Um, so this is one of the original churches, which is why you get this sense when Paul's writing to them that there's a really well-established church there because they're one of the oldest churches that there is at this particular time. So these people from Rome, these visitors from Rome have gone back to Rome and they've established a Christian community there, one of the earliest ones. And so these, in fact, there are Christians in Rome that have been Christians for longer than Paul. They are some of the original Christians in this place. So dating this, this is a church that's about 20 years old by this stage. This is a long established church. I mean, that's a church that's older than the church that I'm even part of. This is a really, really old church, one of the old, one of the originals. So they've been around for a long time. And then, but again, back in 49, the whole Jewish contingent, the Jews that had actually started the church, I mean, you can imagine the senior leaders of this church would have been amongst those who would have been exiled. They have now left, and what has been left behind have just the Gentile contingent. Now, maybe it was some of these guys, these proselytes, but certainly it would have been the converts who'd come into the community since that time, and themselves would have been fairly well established. Um, so you've got you've just lost a big sector of your church, and not for a short time either. They were all kicked out in 49. Now they've come back in 54, so f what, five years later? You've got all these Jew the Jewish Christians coming back into the community who are coming back to a church that has changed. Five years is a long time. Things have changed. And what that would have been predominantly would have been in the, the fact that it would have become more of a Gentile church. Now, what did that mean? Well, primarily around the area of food. So you, to, for Jews and Gentiles to live, to, to live together, they, where that would have um, played out is at the table. You come together every week for a meal, and so when you sit down, you eat certain foods, and there would have been some sort of reconciliation between the Jews and Gentiles, the, the really traditional Jews, who would have not wanted to eat a lot of the food the Gentiles would have. But if, for, in order for them to share a table, they would have been eating maybe a compromised meal so that they could at least be reconciled. And it would have been the Gentiles um, to console the Jews probably not eaten things that they would have otherwise eaten at every other meal. That's probably what would have been happening. Well, the Jews are gone. It's like, great, bring out the bacon, right? Bring out all the food that we never ate before because we've got no problem with eating. It was the Jews that had a problem. We've got no problem with eating it. So, you know, we're just going to start to do communion our way because we don't have anybody else that we need to sort of try to keep happy. So they've been doing that for five years now. Now the Jews have come back and Jews who would have probably been the senior, you know, the original members of the church, senior people in the church coming back going, okay, let's get things back to the way they were. It's like, well, you've been gone for a long time. Five years is a long time. We've been doing things our way for a long time. Don't come back and tell us what to do. So what you get early on in this, in this return are some issues of divisions, okay? You've, you've got issues of going back to war with each other, but specifically amongst the Christian community. Now, that's not good at any time, but especially as Paul is trying to remind these people, who lives just up the road? The guy living up the road is the king of the world, is the emperor himself. He's literally living in the same town where you're having church and you guys are squabbling over food 
Are you kidding? Look what happened last time when he kicked the Jews out. What do you think is going to happen when he turns around and says, oh, the Christians are the problem, are they? And starts to persecute the Christians in Rome. How is that going to work out for all of us here? So you guys are a benchmark to the emperor of what all Christianity is. And if you guys are jerks, he thinks we're all jerks, we're all trouble troublemakers, he's going to give hell to all of us. How about you guys just chill out? Now, Paul doesn't give a lot of instruction to the Romans because it's not his church. He's not writing to them the same way he writes to the Corinthians. But on this one issue, he's pretty clear about it. He really wants to make sure that they chill out so that they don't become the cause of the problems that everybody else has to face. So Romans 14 is, is a lot about that. But then the other big issue, again, is that Paul wants to get to Spain and he wants Rome to be his base of operations. And so he mentions this at the end of chapter 15. He says, look, I'm going to come, I'm going to go to Spain, but I'm going to come by way of you because what I hope is that you guys are going to be able to support me in those endeavors. And so I want to use you guys as a base of operations. But before that happens, you need to know what you're supporting because you don't know me. You've never met me before in a lot of cases. And so he wants to make sure that they know what he's about, that the gospel he preaches is one that they've signed up for. They don't want to, they want to make sure that if they're going to pay him, they're not sending out a false preacher. And so what Paul does is he writes the letter to the Romans to say to them, hey guys, this is what I'm about. This is what my, what my message is and what I've been preaching for a very long time. And so then Romans is Paul spending the majority of the letter recounting what his gospel is and the gospel that he's been preaching for his whole Christian life at this stage. So he's saying to them, you guys, if you are going to support me, this is the message that I'm going to take to Spain. If you, if you like that, if you're happy with that, then I'd really love it if you guys would give me support um, to to do that. Now, this probably would have been a really great time to do my own talk. I won't do that again. But anyway, um, so that's that's really sort of the basic background of Romans. It's not just Paul, you know, writing some random sermon about what he believes, but there's actually a very clear purpose to that. And that's exactly what Paul wants to, to do. Now, did it work? Um, well, he certainly got to Rome. That's what we're going to look at next week. And if church history is anything to go by, he, he did seem to get to Spain as well. But that's a story that we're going to pick up next week. But anyway, um, hopefully that's been helpful. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And I look forward to talking to you next week. All the best. Thank you.